Well, the huge number of people escaping the fighting in Ukraine is a reminder of all those displaced by wars of the past and those still ongoing, including Syria, where more than 6.7 million people have fled since 2011. Author Omar El-Akkad is a former Globe and Mail reporter who's covered stories around the world, including in Afghanistan, where we met. His latest book, the Giller Prize winning What Strange Paradise, is told through the eyes of a nine-year-old Syrian boy who wakes up on the shores of a Greek island after the decrepit and packed boat he is in capsizes. He's the only survivor, rescued by a European teen who lives on the island. In alternating chapters, we learn about Amir's life and how he came to be on the boat, and we follow him and the girl as they make their way towards safety. It's about war, displacement, disorientation, and the dreams of those fleeing violence. Here's an excerpt. Oriented as they are, many of the shipwrecked bodies appear to have been spat up landward by the sea, or of their own volition to have walked out from its depths and then collapsed a few feet later. Except the child. Relative to the others, he is inverted, his head closest to the lapping waves, his feet nestled into the warmer, lighter sand that remains dry even at highest tide. He is small, but somewhere along the length of his body marks the sea's farthest reach. An excerpt from What Strange Paradise. To talk about the book and much more, I welcome author Omar Al-Akkad. Thanks for being here tonight, Omar. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I guess because it's in the news, and we've been talking about it so much over the past month, because your most recent novel really is about displacement, uh, people forced to flee home for circumstances completely beyond their control. I was wondering what you had made so far of what we've witnessed in Ukraine and just the surge of people leaving and how it spoke to some of the same things that you were trying to explore in your most recent book. I think one of the difficulties of writing the kind of stories that I write, and this isn't to say that I write them well or that I've succeeded in anything I intended, just I tend to write actively political books. And I think all novels are political. They're either political by virtue of their active space or their negative space, what they choose to talk about or what they feel comfortable ignoring. And because I write actively political books, they tend to have a very bumpy relationship with the present. So, you know, when I wrote American War, I didn't know that Trump was going to be running for office. I didn't know that the book would come out in that moment and be read a certain way as a result. And obviously, when I wrote What Strange Paradise, I didn't know that we would be talking about Russia invading Ukraine. So I'm not, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, nonetheless, the book is always read in the light of the moment. And I think for me, one of the difficulties is that we live in a kind of society where it's very easy to conflate the individual and the systemic. You know, on an individual level, you are watching human beings undergo immense misery. And, and a massive refugee exodus. <clears throat> On a systemic level, you can see that the reaction, particularly in the West, particularly in Europe, and to a lesser extent, North America, the reaction to these human beings is fundamentally different than the reaction to refugees who happen to have darker skin or come from a different part of the world or be easier to be termed as other. And so that is not the fault of the human beings who are seeking refuge. But it is very, very difficult to look at that situation and not see 
a very clear hierarchy of who gets to matter and who gets to be treated as human with the basics prerequis basic prerequisites of what it means to be human, safety, shelter, community. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a tragedy and it is horrific what these human beings are having to go through, just as it was horrific to watch this happen in Syria, to watch this happen in Afghanistan, to watch this happen all over the world and watch an entirely different reaction on the part of the West. Um, so it's doubly infuriating, I suppose. It feels like this is yet another example of how the mass movement of people, um, you mentioned it in your book, the idea of scarcity is what's driving people out in most places. In this case, it's war. Um, but this idea that this century may well be defined, as others have been, but this century may well be defined by people on the move. And we have to find a way as a society to get used to it and to understand how we help best or, or how we're supposed to think about the fact that there are so many people around the world moving, looking for somewhere new to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not a particularly apolitical person, you know. I think every now and then you run into one of these guys who works on Bay Street, you know, a hardcore capitalist who will talk your ear off about the power of the invisible hand. And uh, I'm one of those people, but for the invisible foot. I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that human beings should be able to move freely and that the onus should be on the state to tell me why I can't go somewhere rather than me proving why I can. Um, that's obviously a function of the kind of life I've had, having left my home country at five and basically spent the rest of my life as a guest on someone else's land. Um, but I have very little respect for this kind of innate sanctity of the borders of the nation state at the expense of human lives. I just don't have that. Um, a lot of people will call that naive, and I fully understand that. But none of that changes the fact that what we're seeing right now in terms of the forced movement of human beings, it qu is quite possibly the beginning of a much greater wave. You know, over the next few decades, if these predictions of climate change are anywhere near correct, we could be seeing orders of magnitude more people moving. And if a bunch of Arabs and North Africans on a boat showing up in the Mediterranean is enough to cause one of the richest societies in human history to absolutely lose its mind and undertake brutal inhuman policies in response, I can only imagine what that's going to look like when you have orders of magnitude more people showing up. Um, I know that as a society, we're very, very good at sort of passing the buck and mortgaging the futures of, of, of future generations, but we can't ignore this for much longer. We have to come up with a definition, for example, of what a climate refugee is and what obligations the world has to people who are displaced from their land. We have a very good set of rules dating back to essentially the post-war period of what it means when you are driven from your land by force. We have a much fuzzier set of rules, and in fact, in some cases, no rules whatsoever, about what happens when your land is driven from you. What happens when the sea level rises and you are in a Pacific island that is now underwater? We need to codify that in some way because we can't just continue to ignore this problem. This is going to become a bigger and bigger thing. And right now, we are incredibly poorly prepared for it. Just so listeners know, uh, Omar was born in Egypt. You moved to Qatar and then came 
to this country, to Canada, uh, in your teens, I think 16, if, I'm, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, a bit about, to go back to the book, because the book very much is, is, a, is a personal tale, in many ways, of this young boy, Amir, um, a nine-year-old who's been forced from, from Syria, who winds up in Egypt, and then finds his way quite almost accidentally um, onto one of these boats you've just described that crosses the Mediterranean daily with people full of people looking at the mercy of, of, of the elements, uh, often, often in, in poorly built boats or old boats looking for refuge uh, in, in, the, in the West, essentially. What motivated you? I mean, what was the inspiration specifically to write this story? And why did you think it needed to be told? The earliest thing I have in terms of sort of a genesis moment, the moment I go back to a lot, it was in 2012. So I was still working at the Globe and Mail at the time, and they shipped me down to, uh, to Cairo. I was in the, um, the aftermath of the Arab Spring. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I was riding around one night with an old high school friend who was complaining about the rent. You know, why the rent's too high. It was the most universal thing in the world to complain about. Um, and at one point I asked, okay, so what's, what's the rent for an apartment in your building, for example? He said, uh, well, do you mean the local's price or do you mean the Syrian's price? And I said, well, what the hell's the Syrian's price? What are you talking about? And he said, well, we've had this influx of people show up here recently. I charge them three times as much. I mean, what are they going to do? Go somewhere else? And it quickly became clear that this wasn't just a rent thing. You know, you go down to um, the fruit and vegetable vendor down the street. And as soon as you open your mouth, they can tell from your accent that you're not from here, they put two and two together, they realize they can gouge you. And this isn't like a faraway place. I mean, Egypt and Syria for a while were the same country. Um, so it's not like you're looking at someone from, from far away. This is someone who is very, very close to you. And nonetheless, the casualness of that cruelty, just how easy it was to exploit the most vulnerable, was the instigating moment when I, you know, whenever I think of a question that I can't find an answer to, but it also makes me quite angry. That's when I retreat into fiction. Uh, fiction for me is where to sit with, with these kinds of questions. And so that's when I started sketching out ideas of, of how to talk about something like this and how to think about something like this. And it took the better part of 10 years off and on to, to sort of um, put it together. And during the writing process, um, was you know a lot of the writing took place during the height of the uh, what they call the refugee crisis um and you were constantly seeing news stories images, these horrific accounts of what was happening to people trying to make this journey is that all of these accounts was show up wrapped in a bubble of outrage how could we let this happen how could we let this happen last for about 24 hours and then everybody would move to be outraged by the next thing and so I think one of the things that novels do quite well is that they allow you to dwell. I wanted to do, I wanted to dwell on this. That was the instigating moment that was back in, in 2012. I'm speaking with Omar Alakad, author of the What Strange Paradise, the winner of the 2021 Scotiabank Giller Prize. We'll be back with more from Omar after the I'm speaking with Omar Alakad, the author of What Strange Paradise, the winner of the 2021 Scotiabank Giller Prize, a novel that follows a young Syrian boy who washes up on shore after the boat he's in 
with many other people seeking refuge in Greece at the time, uh, coming over from Egypt, sinks or capsizes, and he winds up on the beach and it follows his journey uh, as he tries to escape or essentially find a new on his own. And he befriends, a young woman befriends him, a young woman who's not from Greece, but is also European. What was the, when you were trying to describe the friendship between these two main characters in your book, what what message were you trying, what were you trying to convey with that? Because clearly her intentions are always good, um, but she's surrounded by a lot of others whose intentions are not. And you explore a lot of what builds these prejudices against people fleeing the vulnerable, as you spoke about uh, before when Syrians were in Cairo. What message were you trying to convey there? That's a really, really interesting question. Um, because it's, it's for me, the, the load-bearing beams of the two books I've published are very different. In, in American War, the load-bearing beam, the central one, is the character, uh, the character of Surat Chestnut. And in What Strange Paradise, it's a relationship. It's a relationship between Amir and Vana. And, um, you know, the book steals from a lot of places. Uh, it steals primarily from the two works that are cited in the epigraphs page, uh, Peter Pan, and this short story called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge which if you've read, you sort of know uh, structurally what's gonna happen in this book. Um, it also steals from the Odyssey and Paradise Lost and a bunch of other places, but um, it also steals from my own experiences as a child. I grew up in Qatar uh, at the time, and I suspect this is still the case today. 90% of the population of Qatar is non-Qatari. It's people who've come from somewhere else to cash in on the oil and gas money. And so, you know, you'd be at the beach or at a park or wherever, and you'd see another kid and that natural childhood instinct to make friends would kick in. But you would naturally assume that they don't speak your language. And so you start doing hand gestures and you do all the stuff that ends up, ends up finding its way into the book. Um, a lot of that relationship to me between those two children is about the, the, the sort of necessary asymmetry of kindness. And I think one of the reasons that the idea of empathy gets a bad rap in this part of the world is because it's so tied with individual agency. You know, it's important to feel other people's pain and to feel other people's experiences. And if I feel it hard enough, I can make things better through my own powers of empathy. And I think that second part is where I get caught up. I think empathy in of itself is extremely necessary. But this idea that if you empathize hard enough, you can change the world. That's, I don't think that's what empathy is for. I think Vanna is is an example in my mind of somebody who is deeply concerned with the idea of being a good person and sees that as first and the, the most important thing. But kindness in that kind of situation demands an asymmetry. You know, you reach a helping hand down to somebody, you have to be above them to begin with for that to happen. And so a lot of that relationship is about what happens once you get past good intentions. Um, and again, we talked at the beginning of this interview about the difference between the individual and the systemic. I think that's, that's a little bit of what I was trying to get at with that relationship is that there's only so much you can do individually in terms of your individual actions to offset damage that is caused as a result of the system, as a result of something systemic. So that to me was what I was thinking about when I was putting that relationship together. The last question I was going to ask you about as we once again speak um, a lot about a refugee crisis or a refu you know, people fleeing war, as we continue to hopefully not 
not pay any attention to those still fleeing other wars. We still made promises to people leaving Afghanistan. There continues to be people uh, trying to make it from Syria to here. What would you like Canadians to remember? What would you, what, I mean, the book itself is a message in many ways, but what would you be most satisfied that this country keep in mind when looking overseas at all those fleeing violence, looking for something better and, you know, dreaming of, a, of building a new life here? There is no such thing as far away or a long time ago. And as a result of the kind of society we've set up, we have an, a massive negative space of people who need to suffer so that we can continue to not suffer. And obviously the definition of we differs greatly from person to person, but that negative space keeps growing. And the number of people who suffer by necessity keeps growing and eventually that's not gonna hold and it's not gonna be a negative space anymore. We owe these people who are fleeing and looking for safety. We owe them that safety because it is the decent human thing to do and also because we can't continue to enlarge the masses of people who have to suffer such that the society we've built keeps holding in its present state. One way or another, that bubble is going to burst. And we can, at the very least, have some kind of plan as to how to reduce the suffering such that it doesn't burst and such that we don't have to live looking away from an ever increasing portion of human beings who are suffering. I think that is a basic prerequisite for having uh, a society that, that functions. Um, I know that at a policy level, all of this stuff is very, very difficult to implement. And I'm just here sort of spouting off, um, you know, philosophical um, nothings. But that to me is a basic prerequisite of having a halfway um, decent society. Omar Alakad. Um... Makes perfect sense to me. Thank you so much for your time and your insight and for talking about your book. Congratulations. Uh, it feels a long way from the time we spent together in Afghanistan, but um, it really wasn't that long ago. And congratulations on, on both books and the success they've, they've met. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure talking to you again.